Welcome to our second ever uh, Dryden Roundtable. Uh, this is uh, a roundtable uh, talking about the career of Jodie Foster, who is our uh, George Eastman Award honoree this year, the first one since 2019, uh, when we had Julia Roberts come up here on stage and accept her award. Uh, we have a new uh, set of panelists for you tonight, uh, this afternoon, uh, which I'm very happy to uh, have here. Uh, for the first time in a roundtable, but some of them are familiar to us uh, from other events here at the Dryden. Uh, we'll start on the left, and Nora Brown is the Executive Director of the Rochester Finger Lakes Film Commission, which attracts films to shoot in our area and coordinates with producers and crews to scout locations and organize logistics. And she was a producer herself, working with Robert Duvall on films such as The Apostle and Crazy Heart. Carter Souls is a film professor at SUNY Prockmort, where he has taught women and films several times and published several articles, including those on gender and sexuality. And Kendall Phillips is a film professor at Syracuse University and has published several books about horror films, so I'm hoping you will be very... Uh, Scary. <laughs> very keen in discussion about Silence of the Lambs. Uh, he's also the host of Pop Life, a bi-weekly podcast focusing on popular culture and how it intersects with academia and our everyday life. Uh, so thank you all for being here uh, on this uh, momentous uh, occasion for this month where we're honoring Jodie Foster. Uh, it's wonderful to have you here, and uh, we're going to have sort of a freewheeling conversation. It's, it, we don't know everything, but we hope to learn more by the end of the program. So I guess I want to ask how uh, your experience with Jodie Foster, uh, each of you individually, uh, how you came to know her, uh, how you consider a career. We'll start with Nora. Yeah, um, thanks. I, I, I think the first film I ever saw her in was probably Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, mm -hmm. and it was a very short segment of that. Yeah. But then after that, there was films back-to-back, -back. and so I became very aware, not just of her presence, but her incredible talent for such a young girl. And, yeah. then, you know, you saw on the news, if you if you read any of the... Um, the critiques on the films that she was very young as in Taxi Driver and that, you know, and so there was controversy around it, which I love. Um, anything controversial I want to get right in the middle of. And so I think it probably, it definitely was, um, Alice doesn't live here anymore, but then after that it was back-to-back -back films with Jody. Carter? Well, uh, surely the first films that I saw uh, Jodie Foster in also would be Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and Taxi Driver. Uh, you could say I'm in this room because of the American cinema of the 70s. Uh, films like Taxi Driver or Chinatown are sort of what turned me on to cinema in the first place. Um, but my, insofar as I have deeper investments in Foster's career, that probably starts around Silence of the Lambs. Uh, I'm sure Kendall will speak to that too. Uh, you know, Silence of the Lambs is just such a giant film, both for Jodie Foster and her career and establishing her star persona. And you could probably make the argument that Clarice Starling is one of the characters she's most strongly associated with even today. Uh, and then that's a film that has, I think, a lot of controversies that I also enjoy. Uh, well, some I enjoy, some I don't. But the 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 key controversies, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into this, having to do with some of the gender and representation, representation of certain sexual orientations or, or sort of 
queerness in general and the way it's dealt with in that film is pretty interesting. So it's a very, you know, landmark important film. But I am also a, a huge horror fan and a fan of the thriller genre. So that great 2000s run that, that Foster had and Panic Room is one of my particular favorites of those. So I'm sure we'll we'll talk about her, you know, uh, star, stardom in the context of the thriller because in some ways thrillers have been her bread and butter for uh, at least a good middle portion of her career. Yeah, and, and Carter, ever the uh, self-promoter, is already pushing the <laughs> screening of Panic Room, which he's going to be introducing at the end of the month. So. Yes. <laughs> Kendall. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably showing my age, but the film I first remember was Bugsy Malone, <laughs> which is the Scott Bayo, uh, Alan Parker sort of spoof on the gangster films, which disturbingly is the same year as Taxi Driver. It was yeah. only later that I realized, wow, these two, that's really disturbing yeah. juxtaposition. <laughs> but I would say, the, the, as with Carter, the, the film that had the biggest impact on me was Silence of the Lambs. I would say up to that point, you know, I was in graduate school. My background is actually in rhetoric, so it's very much about social controversy. And it was the controversies over that film, some folks really heralding it, saying this is a very important feminist film, other folks really reviling it, saying this is a, another homophobic depiction. Um, and that so much of that centered on Jodie Foster and, and her body and her person. It wasn't just the character, it was her as a person. That's right. And that really sparked my interest ultimately in horror and film, et cetera. So in some ways, Jodie Foster is responsible for my academic career. I'm not sure she <laughs> wants to take that responsibility. <laughs> you can ask her about it. Well, I, I, in Jodie Foster, my, my earliest memory is not of a film, but of, of knowing of her before I saw any of her films. Uh, I, I remember specifically uh, seeing Ra, uh, Siskel and Ebert, and they were talking about Hotel New Hampshire in the uh, early or mid-80s, and she was sort of trying to make a comeback uh, at that point in time, but she had also, I guess, uh, enrolled in Yale, so they weren't sure exactly what uh, she was going to be doing. And it was sort of a fallow period for her then. But it was actually the first one that I saw in the theater, which uh, I don't know how this uh, affected, uh, obviously it affected me, but it was The Accused in 1988. Uh. So we just saw that last night, and I hadn't seen it since 1988 because it is such uh, an effective movie that it's considered a sort of a one-timer. Uh, but you know, in order to do the research for uh, this month, uh, did put it back, and she won the Academy Award for that performance. Uh, and uh, it was important for us to show it as, as part of a retrospective, but also uh, it's, it's fantastic, just a fantastic performance. And it was from there that I, I pretty much was following everything she did and went back. I actually I saw uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore for the first time for this, for this research. Uh -huh. And uh, my reaction was, how come it's every time I see a Martin Scorsese film for the first time, it becomes one of my favorite of his films? <laughs> yeah. it was, he, the way he approached it in terms of, um, it wasn't a standard drama. He was putting all of his film technique into this family drama in terms of the, the close-ups and the, the, the film or the camera movements that he was using. It, would, it really made it come alive. And as you said, Nora, she had a very small part in there, but I think it fits in very well with that period of time for her in 1976. And, and the reason I watched it was because Chris Christopherson. <laughs> of course. Uh, Truly, that's the reason I watched sure. it the first time. And then after that, I started watching it as a film, not just an opportunity to see Chris Christopherson. And that was before uh, Star is Born, right? So. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yes. 
So, but that's an interesting, not, not uh, the year of uh, Alice, but 1976, where she had five films come out, uh, very varied from Freaky Friday to Bugsy Malone to Taxi Driver, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, and I'm forgetting one other, oh, sorry, here, uh, Echoes of a Summer, which is uh, almost like a TV drama which was uh, very different films. So she really seemed to explode on the scene during that year, and she was doing a lot of work at something like 13 or 14 years old. Uh, of those films, obviously Taxi Driver, I think, is, is the most relevant, but uh, were you responding, as you said, Bugsy Malone was, was another one that you responded to? I mean, I was seven, so I don't think yeah. I could blame myself for responding. But what I, what I, looking back on that, it is quite shocking the level of productivity in that one year and the diversity of roles. I mean, you really get a very innocent, silly, Bugsy Malone, classic Disney Freaky Friday. Then you get Taxi Driver. I mean, it is quite a remarkable range. And again, to me, what's interesting about that is all centered on this kind of young female character. So we really get this wide spectrum of social kind of mores and concepts projected onto her body. Everything from silly to tomboy to, you know, child prostitute. Like, this is an incredible range of that mid-70s kind of sexual ideology, all performed by the same person in one year. And, and an incredible role in The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. I mean, th watching that movie this time, and I, and I watched a lot of her films in the last few weeks, but watching it this time, I was blown away by the, that she had to be a different person around everybody that she was with, except, with the exception of the young man, Mario, Mar the ma magician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she could be herself, but everyone else she had to be very protective of, and I didn't even remember the, what all was going on in the basement at the time, you know, and so, <laughs> And at the end, I was stunned by the long shot, which I originally thought was just a still, but it was on her face. Mm. That whole long shot at the end, and the emotion that came out, the various emotions that came out during just that long shot before the credits, she's an incredible actor at 13 years old or, mm. you know, as a teenager already. Agreed, and, and you know, I know Taxi Driver is, <laughs> is almost it's it's cliche uh, to to talk about Taxi Driver, but you know, I've taught that film many times, and it strikes me that particularly given her age, what is amazing about Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver is that I would say she's pretty much the moral center of the film. Mm -hmm. Everybody else in that movie is corrupt or screwed up psychologically or antisocial or you know that the Peter Boyle character to me is one of the most disturbing characters in that whole film because for a while he's kind of paternalistic and you think he might kind of be more of a grounding point and then it becomes very clear that he's totally out of his mind and so she really has to carry a lot of weight in that movie I know she's not the protagonist and we're sort of sutured to uh, Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle for better or worse but 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 she um I don't know, if, if it weren't her in that role, I wonder how we would feel about Travis Bickle. And I'm speaking as someone who's very ambivalent about Travis Bickle mm -hmm. to begin with. So I think she carries a lot of the weight of making that film work. And especially also the Harvey Keitel character is kind of monstrous, except that it's Jodie Foster playing Iris and it's just, she's there, you know? So 
I think that's important. But but I think one of the key points also was when Martin Scorsese did his cameo in the back seat of the taxi. Uh, yes. And he was talking, just matter-of-factly, about the, eventually getting to, that's my wife and I'm going to kill her. And, and Travis hadn't really gone over the edge at that point, but it, hmm. I think it gave him a reason to, you know, start protecting women or at least to protect her. her. And so... But that was a key scene, and, and it was just Marty in the back seat of the taxi talking like he does when we had dinner one night. He was just matter of factly having a conversation about, you know, that's my wife, and I'm going to kill her. Yeah, you guys can just keep talking. You're writing my an intro for tonight just by yourself, so, oh. so I appreciate that. Uh, Kendall, I really responded to what you were saying about uh, her body and herself. Yeah. As I'm thinking about these five films that came out in 1976, Echoes of a Summer, her body is failing her. She's got a fatal disease. In uh, Taxi Driver, she's selling her body. In Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, Martin Sheen is coveting her body. Uh, in Freaky Friday, she's dissatisfied with her yeah. body and switches it with uh, her mother, which goes, Bugsy Malone takes a step further and puts all these children in productions and in, in production design that is scaled down to them as young adults to adult size as if they were adults within this. And it's really interesting that one actress at this period of time, at this time of her life, is, is engendering all of these, these different ways of looking at physicality. Yeah, she very much becomes, her body literally becomes a sort of screen upon which all these diverse ideas of gender and ideology are projected, but somehow she escapes that. I think to, to Carter's point, she provides that kind of ballast, that center of gravity. So the, these are not just easy fantasies projected on, it's a gangster movie with kids, or she's a child prostitute, or she's a desirable, or she's ill, but somehow she's able to manage to pull, it's almost like a center of gravity pulling those ideologies, those perspectives in yeah. and forcing us to look at them because we, I don't yeah. think you can look at her and just see her as, oh, she's just a child prostitute because she's more than that. She's not just, you know, uh, the gangster's mall. She's more than that. She's not just her mother embodying her body. And it seems very strange to talk about Freaky Friday. In relation to all these, but, you know, it, it's not just that she yeah. brings something more. And I think that's part of what the lure of her is. You, you kind of feel more of a connection than just her filling those roles. Yeah. Well, in a lot of cases, too, you have to remember that it's the director's job to protect that, sure. the actor. And so it, in some cases, they don't even know what in, in what context the scene is going to be sure. edited in. Sure. So there are, many, there are a lot of really violent scenes or really, t let's say, touchy scenes that the actor is just, this is what you need to do. This is, here's your mark, and here's what you need to deliver. And the director and the whole crew is protecting that young actor from actually having to like become that person from a from a producer standpoint it's really important and from a, for a director to protect the actors from seeing too much or knowing too much yeah true too early i also think jody foster presents an interesting case and this is kind of piggybacking on what you both said of someone whose kind of extra filmic persona, her star text or star persona, but as it bleeds out of the films and into real life, plays maybe, I don't want to say an outsized role, but, but an important role uh, in how we read her on-screen roles. And the fact that she was so young, and the fact that I, I was breezing through some... Um, 
like popular press type interviews and criticism from the time, like back from when she was younger. Um, that was the only preparation I really did for this. <laughs> I didn't have time to watch whole films, but I was reading through some of that, and one of the pieces, maybe it was The Guardian, said something about um, Jodie Foster would rather learn French than you know sign autographs. And I thought, wow, that is just like a perfect catchphrase, because from a young age, she seemed really grounded or, or knew what she wanted, and I'm sure that as a young female actor, she needed those protections. And I don't know if in part that persona was generated in part by some of the directors, producers she worked with who helped her with that, I'm sure that's true. But she herself seems possessed of this grounded quality that just, yeah. as we move through her chronology, I think we're gonna bump into this again and again, right? The, her, Jodie Foster as a person somehow, or as a persona, does something for us. Yeah, I think I would add to that. I think you know, to both these, Jodie Foster always doesn't quite fit. And I, I know that's part of the character's re She right. always is a little bit out of sync, right? Mm -hmm. she, she doesn't quite fit. And I think well of like, said. I'm jumping a year ahead, but one of my wife's favorite uh, films of Jodie Foster's Candle Shoe, uh -huh. which is the Disney <laughs> where she plays the kind of Bronx tomboy who ends up in England. And I think that, to, but to me, that kind of captures Jodie Foster's always not quite. Like she doesn't quite fit. She's always a little bit more than or not quite fit. So she's not just a child prostitute. She's a little too smart, a little too moral, a little too connected. Yes. Same yes. is true with you know all these other films. Exactly. She's just a little bit more, and somehow we, as a, and I think that's where, particularly in the later films, when she really starts to become the central point of the narrative, part of what she brings to us is that she can guide us into these new worlds, whether it's serial killers or alien contact or, or you know, Great point. bad flights, yeah. <laughs> really, really bad flights. Uh, she, she guides us into that, and somehow because she doesn't quite fit, and I think part of that is the gender norms, that she's not quite an innocent young girl. She's not quite a tomboy. Like I think even in the 70s, there was a sense that she was somehow not fitting into those and, and sort of seeming simultaneously innocent but not innocent. Mm -hmm. We need to protect her, but also she's tough enough on her own. I think all those things kind of swirl around her body. And I, and I don't think that's just the casting. I think that is a lot of the performance. I think it's a lot of the extra filmic, what we know about her, but it's also a lot about what she brings sure. to those performances. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But we, but we also know that she was portraying characters. Yeah. And so she, she was not those people. And what you no. what you might read in the Guardian, she'd rather learn French than sign autographs. They're selling advertising. They want people sure, to read yeah. the article. They want people to buy their magazine. Oh, yeah. And so I've seen a lot of things about whether it's Billy Bob Thornton and the Canadians or whatever that <laughs> were blown way out of proportion and maybe the words were said but they weren't said in that context yeah but you grab onto that line and then people will read your whole article and you you get hired to write another article for them so it for me as a producer I think of people they walk into the office we start doing their paperwork they're people they came with their children, and we have to find an Airbnb for them. We have to find stuff to do when their kids are in town. And so when they're, when they're in front of the camera, that's who they are. But, but I think also Jodie Foster, in picking the roles that she has picked, certainly did bring us through all of this so that we could deal with serial killers in a way or, yeah. <laughs> or deal with you know the airplane or panic room or whatever. Um, as in her roles, taking those roles was key so that we could get to where she was. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm responding to, to everything that you're saying about her being other or, 
or not quite fitting in. And the way that I always read it, maybe this was it was a hopeful reading for me, was that, you know, it's precocious is not quite it, but she had a it seemed like a, a, a hyper intelligence. Like she was far beyond her years and was more comfortable hanging out with adults than she was with children right. at this point in time, which almost seemed, seemed as if that she was prepared for those roles before uh, a, a normal uh, adolescent would be. And I, I think that bears out in terms of uh, her early graduation and, and uh, a sentence to Yale and pursuing education as something, which I guess was pushed on her by her mother. It's, this is not something that's going to last forever. You need to have something else to do once it's done. Mm -hmm. And she also remembered that if she was in a film that was mostly adults and there weren't a lot of other children in the film, that's who she was hanging out with for months. And so, yes, she's going to school while she's working. She can only be on set for a certain amount of time under a certain age. So she would come in for an hour and do her part and then have to go to school for the rest of the time. Yeah. And so you can be on set for eight hours or whatever it is, but you can only be, you can be on location, but you can only be on set for an hour. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then you have to step away for a break or whatever. So she was around all adults because that's who makes movies. The key yeah. grips and the gaffers and the cinematographers, she was around adults. She learned a lot about filmmaking by making films and watching what they were all doing to make the film. So when she started directing, she had a lot of directors that she had learned from already. Yeah. And yeah. even cinematographers that she had learned from. She did a, a great interview when she returned to Yale about four years ago, just pre-pandemic. She was accepting some sort of an alumni award. And uh, she was talking about how she almost never saw other women on set. It was maybe the, the makeup person. It was the person uh, that was playing her mother. But other than that, it was, it was all men. And that was something that she sort of had to deal with and something that she has tried to address uh, as a filmmaker as, she, as she's gone forward. But it, a lot of something, sometimes things are unconscious. I, I took a, a passage from this um, interview as well. I was wondering about a way to bring this up, and she, she addressed it very specifically herself. Uh, she said, uh, I did probably five or six movies where I was a rape victim before I suddenly turned around and said, I sure do a lot of movies where I'm getting raped. What is that? Why am I interested in that? I had to go back and really look at the history. Not just my history, but my mother's history, my grandmother's history. What part of that was instinct? What part of that was telling their stories? And is it me as an instrument of their survival? So that, you know, we, we tend, I, I'll put it on me. I tend to think that, you know, people are, if they're not working actors, they're, they're choosing parts based on what interests them. But this, this suggests that it's not necessarily top of mind, but it's something a little bit lower and something that you're responding to more on a visceral level as you're accepting this part or at least uh, in, in interpreting the part uh, as you go forward. What, what year was, do you remember what year that interview was? 2019. Okay, because, you know, in, in 2007, she came back as the... Vigilante, who right. in the brave one, yes. and she didn't take crap from anybody. Yeah. In that film, she was she had her mindset on what she was going to do in that film, and she got to be more, you know, I'm this is payback time. It was very much like Death Wish for me when I watched it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't really like violent movies, but I absolutely love that film just because, again, of her ability to to be so enraged and kill someone and then to also then start to feel guilty about it and you know and then to just i want my dog back you know it, 
it was just a total for me it was a total experience of everything that she could give mm -hmm. after what she had been through I absolutely loved that film I was going to actually watch it again with a friend of mine because he had never <laughs> seen it and I said well I'll watch it with you because it was just and, and the, the lighting because it was all at night uh -huh. and so there was such a I'm sure a challenge to light it and and you know bring the water trucks in and make things reflect and um and still keep the the mood of her her wanting revenge. Yeah, and, and I don't even think it was revenge against them so much as just revenge about yeah her <laughs> yeah yeah, it, yeah she snapped. There, there's some great scenes in there about losing that sense of safety and how uh, a clip we're using for the video uh, says I always thought that fear was something for weaker people. And you know the fact that something comes close and hits home. How do you react to that? And she reacts in a very out, very violent way. Uh, but it, I think it uh, definitely uh, within her career, it reflects back on all of the times that she was a victim or a potential victim uh, of all these things. So it's you know, whether it's characters were yeah her yeah. characters yes uh, whether it's um, Hotel New Hampshire where she gets raped and she has. Uh, an affair with her own brother. Uh, it's, um, as we talked about, Taxi Driver, uh, Foxes, where she's uh, an underage. Uh, Carney came out the same year, where she's an underage runaway, and she's having uh, an affair with Gary Busey before she moves on to Robbie Robertson. So a lot of that time in her life, and I think this is what she was talking about, I sure did play a lot of those roles, but to, to have it come back uh, in The Brave One as sort of, and she talks about closure here as well, so she maybe have, uh, been thinking of that as well as a way to provide closure for that part in her career or in her life. Right, and six degrees of separation, she did encounter Jake Busey. Yeah, right, yes. So Gary Busey, <laughs> Jake Busey looked so much like him. Yeah. You know, sometimes, what year was this movie made? Which which one is that? Which one is that? <laughs> yeah, because they're so similar. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, to me, what's interesting about that bridge between sort of this early career, mid-early 70s, to this revival, late 80s, I know there's some films in the middle, but there's Yale and other things that happen, is, back to our earlier conversation, she seems very conscious, and I'm assuming she's making choices with the roles, and I know she pushes very hard to get the accused, she pushes very hard to get Silence of the Lambs, she was not the choice, she was, she was far down the list, but she really wanted that role. I think she's, it seems she's very conscious of that persona that she had as a younger actress, where she was a little tough, a little vulnerable, a little mix of these various things. And she's using that to create a space for these more reflective commentaries on that. So the accused, and certainly Clarice Starling and Silence of the Lambs, she's using that later career to draw from, but also reflect back on all those things that happened in the early career, which which is a remarkably conscious decision for a star. Because as we know, most young stars disappear, yeah. right? Or they end up yeah. on Fox News. Which One of those two, you either disappear or you end up a conservative pundit. But, <laughs> but she is able somehow to, to, to rebuild that career around the same persona and do it in a way that is much increasingly thoughtful and reflective and provocative for film audiences. And, and at the beginning of her career, she needed to work. You know, yeah. during Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, they kind of phoned in those roles. No one came with a passion for that film, and so it wasn't a great film. I, there's still a lot about it that impresses me, but it wasn't a great film. As, as the films that she was in became more popular, again, as a producer, that's worth more money. We got better investors because this last film was successful. So now she can also start picking 
her the roles that she wants to be in. Once the Academy Award came, you can replace the S in Oscar with a dollar sign because <laughs> that is going to give you more money for your budget. You're going to, it does raise your production value, but it also gives you an opportunity to hire some other actors that you want to, to bring in as well. Plus, she, people want to work with her. It can't be coincidence that her directorial career kicks off pretty much in the wake of her getting is the is the accused 80, 88. 88? Yeah. yeah so two Oscars and then she starts to rescuing I'm it's not a direct equation but right. that thing about the dollar the cool. S being the dollar sign we all know that's true and, so. and little man Tate you know she directed because Joe Dante backed out and so she was kind of forced into it but right. that movie is is a little tough for me it's just a little truncated there's some pieces missing to that film but it was her directorial debut you know i'd like to see some, i can't do better and i don't know <laughs> i might know one person that has a handle on it but you know there your directorial debut you leave things out it's hard to yeah to, to do everything and she was in the film you know when i when i worked for robert um when i worked for robert duvall it was I'm going to write, produce, direct, and act. And and that was hard, except that he put, he gave you a job, and he let you do your job. You put a professional face on that department, you let them do their job. When he said, I'm just going to act now, I'm not going to write, produce, and direct anymore, it was like, well, then I can go home, because <laughs> you don't need me, or whatever, I can move on. But it's hard to act in a film and also direct it, because you want to look through the camera, you want to see what's going on, you want to be at the monitor, but you're in front of the camera, so then you have to go back and watch it. You lose perspective, because now you're, you're behind time, and time is money, and so, you know, it, it's not an easy thing to do to direct and act in a film. Yeah, and I was hoping to lead the conversation more towards that period of her career. Um, at, when I was introducing uh, The Accused last night, uh, I learned that she was considering giving up acting or, or going back to graduate school at that point in time. And it was really just this film that if it hadn't worked out, that uh, that she might have uh, gone a different way. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but as, as you said, Kendall, she, she fought for those. There were tons of, of actresses uh, up for both of those roles in The Accused. They were just shying away based on the, the, the content of the script. Um, but she fought hard for it. And you said she fought hard for Silence of the Lambs as well. So her career was still not, even after winning the Oscar for The Accused, her career was still not set. She still had to fight for things. Yeah, so Silence, for those who, who don't know the backstory, I'll tell a very brief version, was originally um, optioned for Gene Hackman to direct and star. Uh, he backs out. Jonathan Demme is pulled in. He just finished Married to the Mob. He didn't want Jodie Foster. He thought there was too much baggage from her childhood. Uh, he wanted Michelle Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer is in the role for a while, decides it's too violent. Hackman decides it's too violent. They go through a variety of options and end up, Foster the whole time is advocating. She'd read the book, she was convinced this was a role for her. And so she really did fight very hard to get it, auditioned several times, kept pushing Jonathan Demme. Eventually they cast her. Uh, Gene Hackman was originally gonna play Hannibal Lecter. That ends up being um, that would have been terrible. Anthony Hopkins, right? <laughs> and so you suddenly end up with this movie magic that was never meant to be the way it ended up. And part of it was Jodie Foster seeing in that role something she knew she could bring to the silver screen and, and obviously did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She nailed it. 
I didn't know the piece about Gene Hackman, and you're <laughs> right, that would never have worked. I mean, isn't his core thing that no matter how violent Popeye Doyleish he gets, he's that down-home Midwest guy at heart. It would never work to have him play Lecter. What's strange is Hackman Sorry, wanted Sorry, sidebar, to, but I'm just, I'm, my mind is blown. Hackman wanted to direct and then pulls out later because the screenplay is too violent. And I thought, did you not read the <laughs> you novel? Read you were going to Thomas Harris, I guess. It's about a serial killer. It's not exactly like throwing marshmallows at people. Like, this is pretty bad <laughs> stuff. Um, but, you know, interesting to watch, and you probably know more about the way a film can seem to entirely fall apart and into place to exactly yeah. what it needs to be. Yeah. Because that's, that actually is the workflow for a film, is that you've got a plan A, and there's a plan B in case. That you have to have C, D, and E also because, because you don't know. There's so many things that can, that can go wrong, and you don't have the option of, well, we'll decide on that in a week. You don't have that time. Time is money. The minute you start development, you know you you have promised a film to get delivered on this date, this storyline with this budget. Back then, negative pickup deals, and so you don't have the option of saying we need an extension or we're not going to make our date because they already have their campaign set up to go out and promote the film. You you don't have the option of well, you know we're going to be late with this. Obviously, if it's you know, 16 months of apocalypse now. <laughs> Coppola they missed every single date that they ever thought they were going to get, which is interesting because Martin Sheen, you know, had just finished Little Girl Who Lives yeah. Down the Lane. But Badlands was before that, so so then he went right into that film and, you know, had a heart attack. And so if, you, if you're, or if you're uh, eyes wide shut, you know, you can take years and years and hold Sidney Pollock, Sydney Pollock, hostage for months when yeah. you're supposed to be done in a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most filmmakers don't have a budget like that. And certainly, just to put in, Demi didn't for silence, so Orion Pictures is already on the edge of going bankrupt mm -hmm. as right. Demi is going to production with silence. And so in spite of the fact that silence becomes a huge box office hit, like makes $275 million off like a $20 million budget, uh, it's not enough. Orion still goes bankrupt. Like it does, it doesn't help. It wins five Academy, all the above the line Academy Awards, the, becoming I think the third film in history to do it. Yep. It isn't enough to save the. So talk about a tight budget. Like there, there is no big uh, additional bankroll yes. because there's nothing left in the vault. Right. Well, and just a little anecdotal story. When I saw Silence of the Lambs, I didn't see it in the theater because at the time I was working on film after film after. I didn't have time to go to the theater, so I had it on what beta or VHS, whatever format it came out. So while we were in post-production, I was watching the film at night. I couldn't watch the end by myself <laughs> because I read, I read so many scripts that it's like, oh, I know how this is going to end. I thought for sure when she fired the gun and the window blew open that Hannibal Lecter was going to be outside the window. <laughs> and it was I was convinced. And so I took it to work the next day and I made everyone on their lunch hour watch the movie with me because it terrified me, that whole movie. But I couldn't yeah. not, you know, I could not watch. I couldn't turn it off. But I, I knew I couldn't watch the end by myself, so I actually had to have the crew around me, post-production crew, there when I finished the film because I was convinced that that's what was going to happen. That's a successful film. <laughs> that is a successful film, and that's why, right. you know, everyone I talk to is they love it and they hate it. Yeah. Speaking of it being successful, I didn't know the piece that Orion had gone bankrupt anyway, but part of that is Orion gets resurrected anyway, right? Like, that's, I always forget, didn't they go bankrupt a couple times or get bought by, yeah, so, so I, can't, yeah, I can't remember all the uh, twisted history of Orion, but um, uh, that film certainly... 
I mean, we talk about Foster and Hopkins and, and Demi maybe and their contributions to that film. But then that film, as we, I think, talked about earlier, also just launched, you know, Foster mm-hmm. as, as a grown-up film star. I would argue Silence, you know, sent her into the next level of, of stardom. Hopkins as well, right? He was knocking around in all those Merchant Ivory films, and the, which I don't mean to denigrate those. Those are fantastic. I mean, Howard's End, come on. But, but that is the film that launched him into superstardom as well, right? So, so it's a significant film just in terms of like pop culture writ large. And then you stack in all the Oscar recognition it got and all of that, and then the controversies which we can delve into. But, but I guess the, the thing I want to introduce is Silence of the Lambs also happens at that key moment. It's right on the dawn of what some of us call the queer 90s, right? Mm. Because meanwhile, in the indie sector, the new queer cinema is happening. The, the, I mean, whatever we want to call it. B. Ruby Rich calls it the new queer cinema. But this group of films are released in like 90, 91, 92-ish. You know, uh, uh, My Own Private Idaho, The Living End, Poison, several films that are kind of creating this little sense of a zeitgeist around queer representation in cinema in America. And so I think the timing of that, right? It's, for me, it's impossible to see Signs of the Lambs outside of that moment as well. So maybe we will have to talk some about its queer uh, uh, politics, but maybe the most important thing is the intersection of that with Jodie Foster. We're back right. to her and not Clarice Starling, but Jodie Foster, right? I mean, Clarice Starling as well. I do think there is reason for a possible queer reading of Clarice Starling, which I'd be happy to talk about if we wanted to get that deep into it. But more importantly, Jodie Foster and the fact that certain queer publications started openly kind of, I guess we could say outing her or at least openly speculating because she had always been kind of, as we know, more cagey about not wanting to discuss her personal life or saying no comment about that, even though I wonder if even by 91, her um, lesbianism was kind of a, a, an open secret in Hollywood. Uh, maybe others can speak to I, that I, as I well. I believe but. the advocate actually outs her, and I think Larry I think Kramer so writes Larry Kramer writes a condemnation of Silence of the Lambs basically aimed at her. Like and, and other people sort of said like it was like Larry saying you're you're a bad gay daughter you're not supposed to do this sort of thing which of course created a reaction among so it's you know it's an interesting moment uh, precisely because of this kind of growing queer pop culture and this growing feminist that you have this moment with silence where two communities that are usually in alliance feminist critics queer critics are looking at the same film and saying, right. how do you not see either how important that is, that we have a strong female character who's not put in sexual uh, uh, danger, that she's smart enough, she's capable, she's able to navigate patriarchy. That's so great. And the other said, you've got another guy in a dress as a killer. Like you're just feeding into every queer monster uh, horror trope. Like how can you see? And the two sides are looking at each other saying, wait, how can you not see what I see? And of course all that intersects with Jodie Foster. She becomes the center of that yes. conversation. And, and, and this sounds weird for me to say, but I saw yes. a really well-produced film that was beautifully shot, that was incredibly written, and the director nailed it, and the actors nailed it. And so that never occurred to me in, in any of my conversations with people. It was That was an incredible, incredibly shot film. The cinematography in that film was top-notch. And 
I'm a film purist. If it was shot on film, I could tell. And when it's not, it honestly is too much information for me. It's like it, it's information overload because everything is just so vibrant and so colorful. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look back there and you see all the different shadows and stuff, film will show you that digital is going to enhance it so you can see all the way back to the back of the sure. room. Yeah. I don't want to see all the way back. I like knowing that there's that dark space in there, you know? So the films that I that I chose to watch, ironically, were all captured on film. Yeah. yeah. Which is pretty interesting. Well, um, speaking of film, then, maybe now is the time for me to offer my the one kind of maybe original thing I have to say about <laughs> Silence of the Lambs. Because uh, because I think these controversies we're discussing are well documented, right? It was a it was a big deal at the time, and I've read articles about it and all this business. But um, as far as the film itself goes, I mean, Clarice Starling, I would never get up on a stage like this and say, oh, I think we ought to look seriously at Clarice as a queer character per se, because I think part of the strength of, of that performance and that character is, in fact, just as you've just said, that, in fact, she um, doesn't seem... Clarice herself does not seem to have a very uh, denotable sexuality, mm-hmm. right? She's all business, man. She's there yeah. to solve this crime. And, and, I mean, in gender terms, I think that masculinizes her a bit in terms of her coding. But... It, but um, and, and maybe if Jodie Foster were straight, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. I don't know. And yet, when I have taught this issue to students, one thing that I've found back when I watched this film more uh, uh, under the microscope, there's a scene um, midway through, a little past the halfway point, where uh, Clarice is talking to her kind of um, uh, FBI Academy buddy, uh, Ardelia is the character's exactly name, uh, played by Cassie Lemons, yeah, right? Yeah. Interestingly enough, another future director. Uh, but but um, the scene where they are doing laundry, <laughs> uh, and in particular, the cinematography of that scene has always, to me, opened the film up to a certain ambiguity because both characters look into the camera and break the fourth wall. And I don't know if that happens anywhere else in the film. I've looked, I don't even think Hannibal Lecter breaks the fourth wall. Or, and le- or maybe he does, or maybe someone's gonna well, tell the, me I'm I wrong. I mean, it's, it's Demi, so you certainly have uh, yeah. people looking directly at the camera. Uh, yeah. Even even in the the ultimate sequence, uh, as you get that POV shot uh, with the the night, night view glass glasses. Oh, certainly that. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Yeah, but there is an intimacy in but that laundry an intimacy. scene. That is that is that is not just two detectives talking it out, like as in Zodiac or something else. Like there is an right. intimacy and a directness in that, and a, and a spark in that conversation. That I, I I'm totally with you. It speaks to something more, and the fact that we don't have any love interest which would have been easy for any filmmaker to throw in or we also have i mean imagine if michelle pfeiffer is in that role (laughs) i think it reads differently i think it comes back to that star Mm -hmm. persona that paratextual what we know about her i think so all those roles before that she's never been like the damsel in distress or the leading lady or the romantic lead like that's not really been who she is so she's in that role and suddenly that scene reads it does 
And I thank you for that. You've saved me. The word is intimate. Because <laughs> they both look into the camera and it's shot reverse shot and these these close-ups and plus the moment is an intense one. They're solving a thing. It's like they're bonding over solving the case. And if I'm not wrong, the actual dialogue is that's when they come up with the covets. It's what he covets. Yeah. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. So that alone, they're talking about coveting something and they're sitting there looking at, at into each other's eyes and they're both dressed down <laughs> casually. So I think it's hard not to especially if one knows the paratextual stuff about Jodie Foster, it's hard to watch that scene and not feel there's at least the possibility of some queer erotics. But I want to make real clear, I'm not making the argument like Clarice Starling is lesbian, but I am saying there's something erotic going on in that scene, and viewers who do pick up on these discourses or have an investment in them, I think probably could have watched that movie and that scene especially and gone, oh, hi, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? I see myself in that, and I, I think that what I'm getting at is this is what makes Jodie Foster, in part, a feminist and queer icon going forward from that, that moment, mm -hmm. if not before, but certainly by then. And, but from a physical production standpoint, it was two women in a male-dominated industry, mm -hmm. male-dominated yes. job. When I was, even during this time period, but when I was work, coming up in film, there weren't a lot of women working in film, and so we tended to hang out with each other um, because sometimes you had a first uh, first AC who was away from his wife for three months and said, oh, I think I'll you know, find a production designer that I like. And so the women hung out together to, so that there was camaraderie, and, and no one ever thought that, oh, I think, I wonder if the girls are in, in a starting beginning and a relationship or have feelings for each other. So the characters were two women that were in the academy and and having to prove themselves when there weren't a lot of women in the FBI academy at that time. And it passes the Bechdel test, which is yeah. <laughs> how often in any film, let alone action films, do we have two women actually talking to each other and right. not talking to a man or talking about a man. They're actually working on something together, which is, of course, beautifully by Demi set up. I mean, that great first time we see Clarice Starling is in that elevator surrounded by those uh, big hulking guys, totally. and they're all in red, and she's in gray, <laughs> and it, her, her body looks so small and diminutive compared to all these people, and yet somehow we know she is ours. Like, we are going right. to work our way through all this insanity with her. But then she's out on the confidence course because she has something to prove because the guys are their times are better, their performances are better, so she's got to be out there perfecting that as well. So it, it is very competitive, and so she shows that side of herself as well, her character. Yeah, there was a couple things that, that I'd like to, to bring up. You, you mentioned that she doesn't have a, a romantic interest, and particularly with these thrillers, uh, there's this sort of four quadrant marketing thing. It's like, well, you know, we, we need to have a, a love interest in there to appeal to the women in the audience. And the fact that she doesn't, I think, is, is a lot of what the feminist readings latch onto is a, a, a person doing a job. It doesn't have to be related to a relationship that, that anybody is in. It's, it's about solving this mystery, not necessarily uh, getting involved with somebody. But you brought up, Kendall, that she did, she, she wasn't, her persona was not as a romantic lead. And, and I was thinking about Michelle Pfeiffer, who had been in Fabulous Baker Boys a couple years before uh, and, and done, it worked with Demi before. But her romantic roles didn't really appear until after that. I mean, she was a romantic uh, interest in uh, Summersby and Maverick and Contact and Anna and the King. That all came after. Yeah. 
Well, and it was a weird, intimate relationship, if you want to go back to Silence of the Lambs for a minute, because she did have a very intimate relationship with Dr. Lecter. Lecter. Yeah. yeah. He <laughs> chose her, he spoke through her, he revealed things to her, and and she, she just had to be the receptor of that. She had to listen to it and take it all in, which is kind of, you know, like an obscene phone call almost, you know, and so yeah. that's the position that she was in, but her relationship with Dr. Lecter was a very intimate relationship, albeit the weirdest relationship, yeah. but it was very intimate. Intimate, and yet definitely not heterosexual, no. if, you, if you don't mind me saying. Like, I think there is ample evidence in the film that Lecter himself is probably at least not a typical heterosexual, if he is at all. Yeah. It seems like his eroticism and his desire is channeled through cannibalism so, so you know what I mean so 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 I agree Intellectual it's a, it, it is it yeah. is it's like you know it was not a relationship like you know yeah. we would talk about having yeah. a personal relationship right. but intellectually or at least let's say yes. weirdly in a strange mental way they were very connected and he knew about her past and the slaughter of the lambs and things and so yes you, you know he was inside her head and as very much as a, a life partner gets in your head and knows what you're thinking driving down the road and you know they know what you're thinking or when you come home and respond to do you want to go to dinner and you get the oh, okay where are you thinking to go you don't want to go to dinner I got it right. and so you know they were very much in what one another's heads him more so than her he was deeply in Clarice Starling's head but I, she I would, explicitly rejects, and I think this is the real key to me, she explicitly rejects that being sexualized. So when she first meets Lecter, he makes a, a, a lewd comment. I won't, I won't repeat it. Oh, and right. she says, oh, that's the sort of thing the other guy would have said, you shouldn't say that. And then immediately sort of rejects, no, we're not playing that game. Same as to with Jack Crawford, who's her kind of FBI mentor, who suggests some kind of older man interest. And there's a moment where he shakes her hands at the end. There's a kind of intimate finger touch. Yes. But she rejects all of this, all of these various Dr. Chilton kind of comes on you need a someone to show you around Baltimore it can be a fun town oh maybe next time like she's constantly pushing all these back the other interesting thing of course to point out is that Silence of the Lambs did come out on Valentine's Day yes mm -hmm. well and and the guy in the next cell Mad Dog Megs yes Stuart yeah, Rudin Megs, yeah. I, I know him oh no way and That's so good. you know I could talk as we get to other films but a lot of the really bad mean nasty people that are in some of her films I know as like they're acquaintances of mine <laughs> so I think that was a part of the panic room thing is that I I know Boris Whitaker and and I and I know Dwight Yoakam and so they're really nice people but it's but for me it's it, it was that was part of my problem not being I can't watch it uh. Because I can't watch them be that when I know I've seen Forrest Whitaker with his kids and his wife and his brother-in-law. And so, you know, to watch the mental thing going on in the head game, that's just not him. So some movies are harder for me to watch because I know the performers. Yes. Yeah. And that's not... I know they're acting. I've been in you know the film industry since 1979. <laughs> this is a movie, but it doesn't come across that way all the time, sadly. I'm sure we know someone that can take romantic film tropes and graft them onto Silence of the Lambs and give us a nice uh, reading of how that, that intimate relationship develops. <laughs> you mean between an idea. Clarice and, 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 and Lecter. Lecter? Yeah. 
I, I see it as too much of a, a father protege type deal. I, I'm not going to be the guy to graft that on for you. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I think it's like good father, bad father. Jack Crawford, yes. Hannibal yes. Lecter. She shakes Jack's hand, yep. and then of course the film ends with her taking the phone call from Lecter, and he of course he gets the last word because he's the. Yeah. Even though he's the bad father, he's the one we all like so well, and as you point out, he has a more intimate connection to Clarice. Yeah. But I don't know if I would. I'll I'll chew this yeah, over, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I I agree with Carter. I think I think the the key to silence is her navigating between these two daddies, each yeah. of whom want to put mm -hmm. her in a box, right? Either Lecter wants to put her in the box and <laughs> consumer, I guess, or, or Jack wants to put her in a box and consumer into the FBI and make her the protege, and yeah. she has to work her way between them, which is I think what a lot of women at that time. And remember, ninety one is a particularly interesting period or year for women in film. We have Thelma and Louise. Mm -hmm. We have Silence of the Lambs, and the one I think maybe gets the short strip, we have Terminator 2, mm -hmm. with a very jacked up Linda Hamilton, uh, ratcheting the shotgun, yeah, like yeah. a very, very strong. So this Absolutely. one year we have incredibly strong female protagonists, none of whom are relying on men, all of whom are kind of pushing back and saying, I don't need men to take care of me, I can push back against the daddies and do my own thing. And then of course that year disappears. <laughs> we end up where we are now. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hollywood, it's your fault. <laughs> I ignore. I, I've never worked on large budget films where I had where I could say, "Oh well, we'll just do this. We'll just yeah, we got money. Let's every dollar was accounted for before we started pre-production." So uh, that, as as we mentioned, that was. 1991 was also the same year that she made her directorial debut. Mm. And it's a great piece of information that, uh, who was it had dropped out? Joe Dante. Joe Dante, which I, it doesn't seem like a, a real fit either. That seems an odd, yeah. I wouldn't have guessed him. Mm. But I, he was, you know. Creative differences. Struggling himself at that, but he's always been struggling to, to get jobs and create his own stuff. But um, yeah, so she, and I think that's also really interesting in terms of watching the film and knowing that she didn't have a year or so of pre-production to get this. So as I'm, I'm watching the film and I'm reading and I'm seeing those Demi close-ups and I'm seeing those Scorsese camera movements, that it, the film opens with this overhead shot just sort of spinning down on her giving birth to Fred. And it's like that was given some thought, but it's, it's camera movement and it's very evocative in terms of the, the Fred spirit sort of coming down uh, to join her at, at that table. Um, but it was, it's, it's great to see her making decisions. As she's mentioned in the, the interview that she did, that there weren't women on set. And I think that's really important as she becomes a producer as well uh, for her to... Uh, put women in those positions and to tell women's stories going forward. Anybody else seen Little Man Tate recently? I watched it. Yeah. I, I made a point of watching it because it, because it was her debut, her directorial yeah. debut. Um, like I said, I thought there were a lot of parts that didn't make sense when they got to post-production. I think a lot of things were put, were put in without explanation. I think a lot of things could have been explained better. And, and the distance when she was in, was it in Florida and the kid was with, um, help me out with the actress now, I'm totally. The Adam Hanbird? Uh, yeah. Um, the distance between them was, I don't think was explained enough emotionally for either one of them, except mm. that Fred really didn't have, 
have the emotion. And, you know, really until he's like, okay, I'm done. I'm hitting reset. I'm going home. <laughs> and he just walked out and he went home. And she knew to go home. Her character knew to go home. Um, I, I, I think it was beautifully shot. And I could see that she took a lot of um, technique from other directors that she worked with to put mm -hmm. this together. And, I, and it might have been a little bit of overkill. There might have been a little bit too much of an homage to this director or to this cinematographer. And instead of letting the story take place. But again, she came in without a lot of prep time right when you're you know you're throwing a script and you're going to be in the film and then you're the director also that's a really hard thing to do yeah did she have the best people working with her i don't know i didn't go through all the credits to yeah. find out who the editor was or who the cinematographer was so you know sometimes you just end up with a really great story but it's not beautifully told yeah, it's, I think that's the problem with Little Man Tate. I love the film, and I love the characters. I loved everybody in it. I just, it just was, um, I don't think it told as beautifully as it could have been. But it was her debut. You expect yeah. somebody to just be, you know, an accomplished director the minute they take on that role? I never did. I loved working with first-time directors just to see what they could do. And I worked with a lot of first-time directors. But yeah. um, I don't think that she hit it out of the park with this one. But I think it, it seems to me it was a project that was very close to her heart because it is about a child who's hyper-intelligent. And I think there was some, some specific things she related to uh, with her own life, with this mm -hmm. character, and, and probably with that single mother who was raising that child and the challenges that they faced. Right, but she knew, she knew that child's character. She knew yeah. his personality really well. She wanted to do well by them, character-wise. She wanted to do well by him and let him go farther, but she also wanted him to be a child, which is something he just never had an opportunity to be a child. It was like he was born 14 years old, you know? <laughs> it's interesting to your point that uh, it's difficult to act and direct in the yeah. same film, that four of her films that she directed, she did not appear in two of them. Mm. And I'm wondering if those two were the ones where the director fell out and somebody had to step into that role. Although the other one that she did uh, was with Mel Gibson, who was also a director and could have, mm -hmm. I suppose, stepped into that role. Well, it's not easy to work with Mel Gibson, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although she seems to have a very good relationship with him. Worked she with get, him she put him in the beaver right after the initial blow up about yeah. the uh, police and the anti-Semitic comments. And so I, I don't know if that speaks to her judgment as much as her loyalty, but I'll, I'll, I'll give her the pass since this is a tribute to her. But uh, Well, and people say stupid things. And because... Because you're a celebrity and because someone caught it on tape or because someone wants to just keep reporting day after day after day about it, it's not going to go away. People say really stupid things sometimes. And if you hold that one thing against them for the rest of their career, you're going to ruin them. So having someone as an advocate, someone who is your friend, who says, you know, you said something really stupid, but I'm going to help you out because I feel that you are a good actor. I disagree. <laughs> on, a, on a lot of films, I disagree, but but they were friends, and so she stepped up and said, "I'm going to help you. You know, I'm not going to hold it against you." There's, there's a lot of people have said really stupid things, and and with police body cameras, and everyone's got a phone. You know, it, it, we see a lot more of it nowadays, and and I just look at it as that person said something really stupid, and unless they continue down this road with that personality or that opinion. 
I'm just going to give them a little latitude. But in the film industry, you know, you can hang yourself really quickly because you lose an audience, you lose money. Mm. It's, it's a purely American game to build somebody up and then tear them down, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then redeem them. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just caveat, uh, when Jared asked me to uh, participate in this roundtable, I kind of looked back through Jodie Foster's filmography and was somewhat horrified to realize <laughs> I have not seen a single thing she's directed. And I mention that now. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know her well as an actor, right? But Because uh, who doesn't? But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to work to fix that, especially by the time I show up here in late May to introduce <laughs> Panic Room. But you were saying a minute ago about her stepping up into the role of director and then Mel Gibson possibly being around and being an option. But see, what I wonder is, Gibson, whatever else he may have done or not done aside, as a director, seems to stick pretty close to like one or two genres, right? Like a war movie, ac action, epic-y kind of movies. Uh, whereas Foster... I mean, maybe a little more wide-ranging, but maybe more to the point, movies in which she's already been cast might already occupy sort of uh, thematic or content territory that she might be more comfortable directing. Sure. So one thing I was looking into, because I was sort of, uh, we just ended our semester this week, and I've been grading, and I, just, uh, and I thought, oh, I'd love to watch something she directed before I showed up today. It didn't happen. But I was looking because she directed an episode of Black Mirror a season ago, and I, wa I did watch like the first eight or ten minutes of that, about all I could <laughs> oh, squeeze you really in. Did I, your I, I know, I'm really on top of it here, so I'm just being upfront about that. But but, you know, here we are, once again, story about a single mom with a daughter. Mm -hmm. And you were just saying, you know, so I'm, th I'm thinking, I wonder if, I mean, it's kind of surprising to learn she wasn't the original director of choice for Little Man Tate, mm -hmm. given its themes and the way we now see it, even I who have not seen the film itself. I know the stuff you've talked about, like the content of that film is uncannily analogous to her own life. So it's like you kind of wonder, why wasn't she the director? So I'm just wondering if that would apply to other films in her directorial filmography. Is there sort of a oops, con connecting theme, genre kind of thing going on there? But I can't speak to that. Yeah, nor, nor can I. I'm not sure about the, the story for each of those instances, but... Um, it you know it, at some point it, certainly you can read the films without that that metatextual. Mm. Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah. But um, the I think probably if I'm looking back on those four, Little Man Tate is actually my favorite of her directorial mm. films. Cool. So, yeah. but that doesn't mean that uh, she hasn't grown. That the Money Monster with Julia Roberts and George Clooney is very stylized, and I think technically there's a lot more to to. A lot more work that she does. Like you know, uh, sometimes we give best actor to the most acting. That's, that's certainly more directing <laughs> yeah. technically than right. they have been in the right. previous films. But, right. Yeah. Well, and also remember that the process of getting first nominated and then getting an Academy Award is so political and yeah. just so convoluted that I, I've worked on films that were nominated. I. I know that there were a whole lot of films that should have been nominated before the piece we did. And so <laughs> I don't really look at it. It's just if you're in the industry, if you're a producer in the industry, you don't look at awards as being the reason why this person should be in your film unless it can bring money. 
yeah. unless they can bring an actor that we couldn't get our hands on, unless they can bring a writer that we couldn't get our hands on, then then that award comes in very handy. But as, but making that decision based on that, because, because it is. I mean, I saw it to Leslie at South by Southwest, and it was one of the best films I've mm. seen in a very long time, and certainly that performer deserved to be nominated and to make a big stink out of it and have really have to get all these other people, Laura Dern and everybody involved, to say she should be here, it, it turned, it, it, I was already sour on the Academy Awards, and that really just <laughs> made it worse for me because I do respect the Academy, I do respect the decisions and stuff, but, but I question a lot of times their, their motives. Mm -hmm. And, and it, yes. there's a lot more, it, it's like Sundance Film Festival used to be a fun independent film festival to go to and it's so political. Toronto is the same way. You know, things change when it, when money is involved and, and you get economic impact and everything else, things change and so it's the same with the Academy Awards. Um, if theaters are gonna go away, does that mean Netflix is gonna have to buy a theater in order for their films to be screened in a theater, do a theatrical run in a major city so that they can then be considered? I mean, there's, there's so much changing right now. We don't know the evolution. We can't predict what's gonna happen with theaters. I, I go to theaters. I, I don't like watching films on a small screen. And so, you know, I'm sorry I got off the track, but, <laughs> but when it comes to Academy Awards, they do play a lot more for people that watch the Academy Awards and talk about it the next day. But when you're in the industry, if it doesn't mean it's bringing me money, yeah, it's, it's not as important. Well, speaking of money and its intersection with politics and gender, here's one thing I can say about Jodie Foster as a director, again, having not seen the films. As I was looking over her filmography, I did notice a pattern that seemed extremely familiar to me. So my background, it's funny you mentioned Sundance. My scholarship, my dissertation, was about independent film in the 90s, the American independent cinema explosion of the late 80s into the 90s. And so um, there's a, a scholar named Christina Lane who wrote a, f a famous article, Just Another Girl Outside the Neo-Indie, where she documented how women directors, at least in that independent sector, I'm not really talking about all of Hollywood here, though I assume there's some analogy or something similar happens, which is that women directors get, sorry for the sports analogy, this is me, <laughs> but, but women directors tend to get far less at-bats than male directors sure. do. So even a woman director who has a successful debut picture or a successful couple of first pictures, like say Alison Anders, um, often finds themselves not able to get funding for a third picture, a fourth picture. And so, especially in the 90s, what would often happen to those directors is they would end up directing television, which Again, to be real clear, I am not making any kind of like value judgment or cultural judgment that television is lesser than film. But I do think in the industry and in terms of the money at stake, that is often true, maybe with the exception of some very prestigious television jobs nowadays. But especially in the 90s, that might not have been the case. So I was looking at uh, Jodie Foster's filmography and couldn't help but notice that after a few films, she pretty now she's more or less working for Netflix. I mean, as a director, um, obviously as an actor, she as a star, she's remained 
has a lot of cachet. But as a director, I saw the same thing, which surprised me a little because I would have anticipated that maybe if anybody had a shot at having a little more stable directorial career, it might be Jodie Foster, who's such a well-known name. And again, I think her early films as a director at least are critically appreciated. I don't know if they were huge bankable movies. But just to say that, yeah, there seems to be um, that same kind of industry sexism, at least around women directors, seems, seems unless someone else can shed more light on that, uh, you know, it applied to Foster as much as it did those indie directors that I've studied. I think you can look across the board. I mean, Catherine Bigelow, Chloe Zhao, oh. even the Academy Award winning female directors, I know. they're not getting the kind of money thrown at them that a Wes Anderson or a, or a Chris Trevor Nolan or whatever, they're, they're not getting those kinds of support. And That's they're right. often having to end up back at indie, back in horror, back That's in right. Netflix, That's back right. in things to work their way back, back up. So. But that is, Netflix is more and more actors who said, I'll never be in a TV movie. You know, that's what Netflix is, is a TV movie. Yes. Unless yeah. they have in their contract a guarantee that it's going to do a theatrical run, you're you're making a TV movie for a streaming service. That's right. And so Netflix really does now with DEI, they really are concentrating more now on diversifying and giving opportunities to more people, BIPOC, people that would not necessarily have the opportunity to be doing this. And, and yes, TV... They've always been in the TV industry, and they're now they still are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I, I like Netflix. I like Hulu. You know, they certainly bring films here. We, they spend money here, and that's my job <laughs> to get them to do that. But, but I, I, I like to, I like to, to watch a film that I know was made to be on the big screen. That at least somebody during the during the process of doing their post production and making their their their. their digital version of the film so that it could be projected, at least looked at it on a big screen to see how it would play in a theater. Because so many, so much of the content now is not that way. That no one ever looks at it, you know, it's it just does it fit in the box that you're gonna watch it on at home. It they just don't think about is it gonna is it gonna look good on a big screen? And and it does because because the requirement now for Netflix is so high for the resolution of your picture and yep. you know it has to be captured now at right. higher resolution and so and provided to them in higher resolution and so it does look good but again we're getting into the whole digital thing for me it if it doesn't look good on a big screen I don't know that I'm going to be inclined to watch it. But even in the realm of film alone or films that were sent to the big screen, you mentioned the recent Oscar race and that controversy around To Leslie and all of that. I mean, I don't know how much this was mentioned in that specific controversy, but there was this other controversy happening at the same time, which was where in the hell was the woman king in yeah. all of the Oscar yeah. considerations? Because that's another woman-directed film, a woman of color, Regina Prince-Bythewood. And it's like... You know, there's only so many of those spots at the table, and it's very political, and I don't want to go all the way down that path. <laughs> we need to get back to Foster, I realize. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's that thing of, you know, there are certain directors and actors who are going to get those spots, and then, you know, uh, sometimes it is women or women of color who are kind of fighting for those last couple slots, and that's what that race looked like to me this, this year. Yeah. You know, where was Viola Davis? Oh, it was, it was <laughs> I, I looked at all the nominees, because I do every year, but I don't watch the show, and people right. are like, oh, I was really disappointed this didn't win, and it's like, 
you could have t- tossed a coin. You yeah. could have yeah. just seen yeah. how many times it came up heads and you would have been able to figure out how they were selected because because of how they're voted on. And so, you know, it's it's like the popularity contest. It doesn't have anything to do with what a great film it was. Right. Every once in a while they hit it out of the park, they get it right, in my mind. But that's just my opinion. You yeah. know, everyone has their own opinion on what should win. Absolutely. So we've, we've touched on, so Jodie Foster has four uh, Academy Award nominations, one from 76 and then three within that time period from 88 to 94, where she won two awards. The one that we haven't touched on yet is Nell, and I'm wondering if, when was the last time you saw that, that film and what you have to say about it? It's been a minute, I'm going to say. <laughs> well, I, if, I don't I, remember it fondly, I'll just say that. Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah, I remember seeing it in the theater and uh, you know, appreciating it, but it became quickly very easy to sort of make fun of. It, it was a in a win film where you're, you're <laughs> talking I'm about... I'm glad you did it. I was going to do it. But I, well done. Well, well thank done. you. Um, but going back for research, it's it, it's different, certainly, than the rest of her filmography because it really is a, d- a different sort of acting challenge where uh, she's nearly feral and, and she's it's it's very much a, a physically expressive performance uh, instead of relying on that dialogue. And when you look at it in that context, I think she's a really great job uh, for that film. And Apted, director Michael Apted, uh, oh, yeah. who has done yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of sort of the, those rural uh, th- as well as the, the seven uh, documentary series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess what, what I think is interesting uh, for Judy Foster's career after Silence is the diversity of roles. Mm-hmm. So you get Summersby, you get Maverick, you get Nell, and it almost seems, a, to me, quite intentional effort to get away from the roles that had kind of brought her back. So the accused yes. and Clarice Tar- Starling as the strong female in the midst of a male-dominated world, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this kind of, I, I don't, I'm assuming it's intentional effort to, I'll be in a kind of romance, I'll be in a kind of light comedy, I'll be in this more, you know, uh, hard-hitting drama about Nell and et cetera, an effort to kind of expand beyond that very specific role that was very successful, although ultimately that's what she ends up back with. So that's to me, it's interesting that moment yes. where she's like, "I'm not just the strong female in a thriller. I'm all these other things." Ah, oh, screw it, I'm a thriller. <laughs> Let's go back yeah, to the page. That's, that's right, yeah. around 2000 or thereabouts. Now, no, it's true. Nell is one of the. I, I told you I watched 21 films yeah. from the time you said you want to do this till today. Wow, um, teacher's pet. No. <laughs> oh no, I just wanted to because I didn't remember. Yeah. I've seen them all, but I did not yeah. remember enough that I was felt comfortable talking about them. Um, it is very hard. Her character, she had to portray a character who could not use words to express herself. Everything had to be done with facial movements and body movements and her reaction to things and you know showing fear and then showing affection or showing acceptance anyway. And so um, I was thinking about, you know, Bill Fickner is another acquaintance of mine and he had to be blind in contact. Yeah, that's not easy to do. That playing a blind person and trying to have not get line of sight with anybody, not address anybody, and really kind of address your lines to this blank space. So uh, that was what impressed me about Nell. I didn't care for the movie completely. It was I thought it ran on too long, and and I really thought there was a lot of flotsam and jetsam in, their, in that <laughs> film. But her, her 
grasp of the character and her ability to play someone who had to use actions and reactions and not be able to speak was was brilliant. I mean, she really got hold of that character and was able to deliver a character who could not communicate. But she still was able to communicate that for us. So th I think that's that's the one thing I liked about Nell, and then I'm kind of like you, not my favorite film, but she really did, as a performer, she nailed the part. Yeah, to your point, you know, it's uh, filmmaking is a very specific type of communication. And when you take away part of that, it's uh, quite an achievement to be able to still create that character and communicate it on screen. So I think between Foster and Apted to, to create that character and create a space where that character can emote uh, effectively to the audience was, was a, a great achievement. There, there was one thing that I thought of, this might be mean, but she didn't have a lot of lines to learn. <laughs> she wasn't well, saying actually, so. She I, wasn't calling out to the script continuity, you know, line because there wasn't one. I, I bet there was continuity though. I, I, oh sure, but I mean, she wasn't asking for a cue for her line. Yeah. Uh, it says, I don't know, boo boo something. Yeah, yeah. brunt, brunt twice. But it's it's consistent within that film because Liam Neeson is learning that language uh, as he's going. So that right. in yeah, order for true, it to yeah. track. Uh, from the beginning to the end, the audience also has to recognize those same syllables in that order to to make that translation connection as yeah, well. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, good yeah. point. Um, uh, some of the other films that we're showing, I'm not sure if you'd like, uh, certainly, uh, Carter, if you oh, want to talk yeah. about Panic Room. I'll get my chance. Uh, Contact was another one that we brought up uh, that's going to be screening in two weeks, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was, that was actually, my wife's not here, but that was our first date back oh, in 97. Man. So I had already seen it. So I was that's like, awesome, yeah, dude. I like this movie. So let's, let's take you to, to see that one. Yeah. But um, that was another one. We... It's another film where she's out of place, right? Even within the, the community of these people who are using the, the, the um, radar. Uh, radar. SETI. Well, she's, she's yeah, working at SETI. But using the dishes. Yeah, that's why she's a weirdo, because she's looking for little green men, as she says, when all these other men within uh, that are using uh, the... I'm trying to think of what the word is. Uh, they're using the equipment radio to... Radio tells. Thank you. Thank you. Ah. Uh, to to track physical phenomena uh, throughout the the, the galaxy, um, but it's it's interesting. It's a really great film, also in talking about uh, science and faith and how much bleed over there is in between the two. Yes, and and I and I thought the casting Jenna is is her younger self. There's there was a scene that. I never picked up on it every time I've ever seen the film, but I was watching very carefully, and the cinematographer, the camera was low angle. She was sitting out on, like, near one of the dishes, you know, and she had uh, one leg, one knee raised, and and as the camera came up, the the her facial features. I wasn't sure at that moment. She had a straw hat on. The facial, the the similarities between her and Jenna were striking. I mean, it was unbelievable. For a second there, I thought. Is this super, you know, is this done in post? Because she looked just like her for that brief moment. Her hair was pulled back, so all you saw was face, and she had her straw hat on. And 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 for me, the, my my interest was when she heard the this prime number, you know, coming in, she got on a walkie-talkie. Yeah. So she was communicating 
back to base electronically, basically giving a message to them, trying to tell them what to what signal to hone in on, a signal. Yeah. So it, it just was very interesting that she was using modern technology as she was driving and running and she ran through the building and she came in and they were dialing it in. She was using a walkie-talkie electronic to talk to mm -hmm. them to tell them what to do and the message, wherever it came from, was electronically coming to them to build this thing. So that was just one of the little, I loved Contact. That was one of my favorite films and her in that role for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, that that I didn't notice that shot until this last time that I watched it as well. But yes, it was Wasn't imposed. It? Yeah, they did they did superimpose Jenna Malone onto her face for just that you brief. You think? Yes. Yeah. I I went back a couple of times and looked at it, and I didn't see they they must have been really really good with their. I mean, you know, the technology was not it's, that it's advanced Zemeckis. back then. Yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. It was I, I thought you were going to bring up the shot of the the mirror shot. Yeah, but I mean that shot. Yeah, that shot. Oh, the shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch that shot Real and tell deep. me what you think because I, the, I already at the beginning thought how much their their facial features yeah. were similar, their structure, their nose, and everything. And then when I saw that shot for yeah. a second, I was like, which well, one is that? Not only is it is it technical, but it's thematic in that that's the the point at which she hears the signal, right? And suddenly, little Jenna Malone trying to contact her father out there in space after he's died. And that's how we leave the character. It comes to, to fruition with finally reaching something out there, which I think yes. is why uh, Zemeckis did that, is to, to bring it all together. It's that same person finally achieving something, even if it wasn't. Well, I guess ultimately, when she does see her father at the end of the film, it, it is that uh, summation of, the, of that search. That and quest. was that a spiritual experience like Matthew McConaughey's character was trying to do you you know do you believe in God was it that or or was it her imagining you know it leaves yeah. you with you can you can pretty much decide for yourself what happened to her in those 18 hours that were only a few seconds right because you know the the camera that she wore taped nothing static for 18 hours right so that was that was a a brilliant film, I thought. Contact was a brilliant film. And, and a wonderful film to see in a theater. So you all have been prompted to come back in a couple of weeks. And I, and I would just add, I also, watching it again for this, I, it is a remarkably prescient film. I don't think I grasped it at the time, but the conflict between science and faith and the degree to which the public would not believe what scientists were telling them. Yeah. Who, who would imagine anybody would not believe medical or scientists that they're telling us things? Who would dispute that? And yet, when I particularly at the end, when there's the congressional hearing and all that uh, controversy, I thought, watching it now, it's like, oh, wow. They, they had, they, they had a, a crystal ball into the future because we're right there. Yeah, very true. Maybe Carl Sagan had the crystal ball. From right down in Ithaca, so there you go. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Carl's at Cornell. He's a, he's a local. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It was, uh, the book was published in the early 80s, yeah. I think so. I mean, that's really 40 years ago that, that the prescience yeah. really starts. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it brings up so many issues. It could be a whole different conversation in and of itself. But I think that uh, Foster's performance, again, you've, you've got another acting challenge, although so many of our actors now face that challenge where she's acting against nothing. 
where it's it's all sort of green screened and and put in. But uh, as uh, Zemeckis zooms in on her face, and you can see her, it's that Spielberg thing, right? Don't show the thing, show the reaction to the yeah, thing. Yeah, that's right. And she does such a great job with that. Just you know the the range of emotions that go across her face and the the wonder that you can see in her eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And don't you think Contact is one of the most beloved films in her filmography? I mean, we're all kind of gushing over it. I haven't said much, but I love Contact, too. Who, yeah. who doesn't? I mean, I shouldn't ask that here. But, <laughs> you know, it strikes me as a very beloved, like, I don't know, cult classic. It's a little too mainstream to be that. But it's it's a beloved film, I think. It, it's one of those enduring ones that a lot of people have strong, fe- positive feelings about, right? Well, it's smart science fiction, which we yes. don't get a lot of. Like, yeah. A lot of our science fiction is just laser swords yes. and rocket boosters Space and here's opera. something a little like arrival later but it, it's it makes yes. you think encountering hyper intelligent beings they would not walk in and hand us their card right this is it's going to be a different kind of engagement right. and you can drive by those dishes i mean yeah. they exist yeah. right. so it's you know film tourism to a certain extent but people want to go by and see like where did spider-man shoot on main street so where was this scene shot, and you can go there and you can see them. It's very interesting. So maybe it's time we should talk about Legacy, since we are giving uh, the award for her contribution to the art of film. Um, I'm not, I don't even necessarily want, I'm not, I want to ask the question, where do you place her? But what is, I guess, uh, Legacy? What do we have to say about her legacy uh, within uh, filmmaking? Uh, over the last 50 years. I think that's a critical thing to say right there, that she had a career that has, she has a career that has lasted that long, and taking the role she needed to to work and be established, and then now being able to select her roles, and if she wants to work at all, Mm -hmm. you know, she she can say, I don't want to work anymore, or I would like to try directing something for Netflix, something episodic that's not, um, a, a full-length narrative, you know, film, and and I think, as far as her legacy goes, that the longevity of it is probably one of the most impressive, and and also that it has just gotten better and better and better. Her films got better and better as she as she went along. She showed us her you, her incredible talent younger, mm. as a young person, and that she had the potential to blossom into that, and now has shown us that we have not even begun to see the depth of her, all of her talent. And she's just so graceful when she does it. <laughs> um, I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> everything. Oh, indeed, indeed. I mean, the only thing I might add to that is another little layer, is that she's done all that. And I would say that she's kind of unique in that she has sustained a long career and done so with the star persona we've already discussed. That she Mm -hmm. is, I think, a pretty legitimate feminist icon and probably queer icon as well. And to be both of those things and sustain, and and now I am previewing what I might say (laughs) at the end of the month, but to do all this and do it in the genres. Here we are talking about contact. Here we are talking about Silence of the Lambs. We're going to be talking about Panic Room or the the brave one. I mean, she's done this in mainstream-ish, crowd-pleasing 
thrillers, sci-fi films, dramas. She's, you know, sometimes we talk about like art filmmakers or these, you know, Parker Posey, this indie star who yeah. embodies a kind of ambiguous and edgy femininity or whatever. But for Foster to do that in the mainstream Hollywood machine is just an absolutely remarkable thing to me. Mm. Full stop. Yeah, right there. So her legacy for feminism and as a queer icon, I think, is part of what makes her really important culturally. Ditto. No, I got. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll just. This probably just echoes what they already said. But I, I think it, it is very rare to see a creator, because I think she's more than just an actor. A creator yes. bring this kind of critical, provocative intelligence to mainstream cinema consistently over a very long period of time. Most people would either drift off into more indie work or be absorbed into kind of more sort of standard work. She has always, across these roles, whether I liked them or didn't like them, she has brought a level of intelligence, a kind of, like she said, she doesn't quite fit. And that not fitting forces us to rethink the genre, rethink the, the, the ideologies, rethink what film is meant to do. And to do that over such a long period of time and consistently find success, whether in the big screen or now on, on Netflix, that that's that is yeah that's impressive no matter who you are so mm -hmm. yeah that, I think this is all great and that if I could add anything I would say that you know sometimes when we, we call somebody an icon we're looking to them so to sort of um, identify trends and that kind of thing but I think the icon status can also be someone to look up to, just pattern yourself after. And I think that is definitely part of her legacy that she has brought, I mean, a couple of different ways, the, the intelligence to this uh, industry that the narratives are so based on emotion. And the fact that she's using intelligence not only to tell the stories that she wants, but also bring that to her characters as well. But as a woman in the, the industry as well, and pushing the boundaries of what they were allowed to do or identifying the, the gaps in, in employment and in using her career to to address that and and bringing women's stories to the fore and uh, as as a, a gay icon as well to to uh, she doesn't do that specifically but you know the right. fact that there is right. somebody within the industry that is, is pushing all of that forward and as we said you know it's it's still to this day she's got uh coming out a, a film for netflix this year called naiad uh, where she's uh, the trainer, I think, of uh, Nyad, who swam the English Channel, English Channel. But she's also just finished shooting the fourth season of True Detective for right. HBO. So, yes. again, we're talking about the streamers and uh, how that is a, a major portion of the um, uh, industry now. But that she is working within those and, and still right. hopefully producing great work. Well, and, so. and the industry is evolving as we're sitting here right now. Yeah. So we don't know two years from now what it's going to be like, what the different streaming <laughs> services are going to be, what device are we going to be watching these films on, and, you know, um, the virtual production is so rampant right now, with, and artificial intelligence and everything else that's coming, you know, we could be watching some really incredible things, and we could be also frightened at the way things are going. So 
Jodie Foster's career has evolved with the industry because the yeah. industry did not, you know, she yeah. she changed as the industry changed and did great films. Yeah, I agree. So we should perhaps, I don't see Casey uh, around, uh, just yell it out. Do you have any questions for the panel? Yes, sir. I agree with you. I also know from experience that it's it's going to be really difficult for the for MPAA to negotiate with the writers. In in a lot of cases, what the writers are asking for, you know, when you negotiate, you ask for more, and you get less, and so that's normal. But there are some things where MPAA hasn't even offered a counteroffer, has not even come up with a counteroffer, or won't even consider some of the things that the writers are asking for. And so this could go on for a long time. We talked about the, the TV shows that went away in 2007 when this happened. But yeah. also MPAA has to guard themselves because the Directors Guild contract is going to be next, and then the Producers Guild, and then the Screen Actors Guild. And so if you give away the farm right now, then you're going to give away the farm all the way down the line. And so the producers don't want that. They don't want to. They don't want things to change, because we don't know where the industry is going. There are so many more revenue streams for films, and so you know contracts come out with you know on this 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 platform and all known all platforms in the universe known and unknown, mm -hmm. because <laughs> the length of the contract when a new platform comes up then that has to tap into that exact same contract. And they don't, they're not, it's apples and oranges. Not every one of the streaming services or um, ad-driven, you know, video on demand as opposed to getting Netflix with no commercials. And so how do you, how do you distinguish that now when you don't know what it's going to be later? So I am in solidarity with the writers. I feel that a living wage is fair. And I think that's the things that they're asking for in a lot of cases are fair, but I also think they're asking for a little bit more than the MPAA is going to be able to concede and give them. Thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's always a good time for strikes to know that there's a lot of films that have already been made and are shown regularly at the Dryden Theater, so we don't have to worry about new content. We've got old content we can loop back. Well said, sir. <laughs> I'll just add, it's an it's, it is an interesting moment that content is king because there is so many avenues for people to access content, and yet at the same time, the people who are ultimately behind creating the content are finding it harder and harder to, to manage a living wage, and, and more and more producers are willing to go with uh, a, a wider variety of folks and not promote and not bringing enough people to the writing room and try and get by more for less, that it, it, it's a strange moment. The same time we want more content, we're not willing to pay for it. And I think you're right. I mean, ultimately, they'll have to find a balance or, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, and it, I think that a lot of the producers are also saying, look, we made it through the pandemic when we weren't able to give new content. We weren't able to, 
to work in, you know, together. The film industry recovered really quickly because with the film industry and OSHA and, and the unions all came up with a, a return to work agreement. And it was expensive. It would cost a lot of money to test, you know, every single day or every third day. And you have to buy masks and you have to sanitize the set. And so that became cost prohibitive for a lot of production too. And and so the producers are saying, well, we made it through the pandemic and the only thing that people were screaming for was young people, was content for kids because they were work, they were going to school from home and they didn't have anything to do to, they couldn't, for recreation. And so we needed the content for kids and they were screaming for content for young people, but um, they, their, you know, their attitude of we made it through the pandemic and we did fine um, without a lot of new content coming out so we can last longer through the strike. I disagree with that because the world is hungry for content every single day. They want to see something new, feed me, feed me, feed me. And um, you know they're not thinking, I'll go to the Dryden and see a film. <laughs> they want to go home, turn something on, and watch something on television, which is great you know, for the people that are producing and making money on that. Um, I look at Dick Wolf, who produces Law and & Order, and, and here's my TV show, and so I know I'm going to collect my money from New York State because there's a tax credit, and then I'm going to sell the same TV show in all these different markets, and I'm taking all the money. Yeah. But I'm making it and getting a, a refund from New York State. After a certain number of seasons, you wonder, isn't it time to give the money to the writers and, and yeah. you know, maybe, I don't know. I, it's hard to say, but I, I'm totally in solidarity with the writers right now. I think they they need a new contract, and it's been long enough that it's time to change things yeah. a little bit for them. Absolutely. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, why is it so hard for women to get director jobs in film as opposed to TV, though? Like, why even when they're as famous as Jodie Foster, like, why is that? Um, because the people in the key positions of power in Hollywood are either white men or they are people who are um, deep, I mean, you may be able to speak to this more directly than I, but, but I'm talking studio executives here. They've uh, accepted a very kind of narrow way of thinking about uh, profitability and promotion of film. So I think uh, that's, the, that's the simple answer is that there's kind of an ingrained idea that, for example, films made by black filmmakers or films made by women are not as profitable, uh, and particularly when you start talking about casting as well, you know, um, but like black directors are not given, you know, across the board, black directors or women directors are not given the budgets that male directors are, white men. I actually did write down a list of uh, some of the budgets of Jodie Foster's uh, directorial films, and I don't think she ever cracked 30 million. Money Monster was 27 million. So she's been operating in what would I think be considered the low budget or maybe just barely nudging up against the middle mid-budget range, you know, and that's Jodie Foster. Um, so Hollywood is seemingly very reluctant to green light big budget movies to women. There have been a couple recent exceptions, uh, you know. Unless you work for Marvel. Right. Yeah. You work for Marvel, right. but then you're Marvel. So. I mean, even Catherine Bigelow yeah. has not had the kind of budgets that her ex-husband has, not right. even close. But they, they make decisions, they're evidence-based decisions. And so that evidence isn't going to change until you start taking a chance on more women directors, That's right. more diverse directors. 
because they know right now that here's where the money is. This, it's an algorithm, you know, this is the script, this is the director, here's the actors, they punch the numbers in, and that decides pretty much, who, you know, if it's gonna be a success or not. And so it's all evidence-based, and if you can't, if you're not willing to take a chance and throw some, some new dynamics in there, some new, some, a little diversity in there, and then see how the, how the profits are, they're 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 not just they're just not going to shift. They're making decisions, and they are responsible to their shareholders. So until someone is until someone in the industry is ready to break the the ceiling and let's try you know and see what we can do with not just not not just the you know the separating it off into you know people of color um, the LGBTQ the but but independent filmmakers in all over overall and give independent film a chance because this is where film is going there are very few tent poles coming out of hollywood right now big blockbuster films and you know they're all in the theater they go to imax and then with a certain amount of time then they're available on the streamers and and so they're just hollywood is not making big films so it independent films are are everybody they're there and, and really, I think Hollywood needs to start understanding and admitting that we need more independent content. Mm. And, and that would, you know, that would make me very happy, but I also think that people are, are, want more things. Yellowstone, great, great show. The budget on that is ridiculously high. And, you know, the crew and everything, the money that they're putting into a show like Yellowstone, and, and I get it, it's making money, people are subscribing and they're watching it. I, I totally get it, but I, I look at like a $100 million picture and I think, you know how many great films they could make for $20 million <laughs> yeah, a piece? totally. You know, great, really great content with That's very right. talented people for $20 million a piece instead of this $700 million film. I'm blown away by those numbers. And they make their money back because, oh, you know, we just reached a billion dollars. That's great. Imagine the number of films you can make with $700 million. Any other questions in the audience? Do you know what Billy Bob's strategy is now? Yeah, I've, I think so. English <laughs> lit, right? She's one, it, she's one about me. <laughs> it was it was definitely literature. I, I was trying to figure out because it's English literature. I didn't see what period or what her speciality. No, I was, didn't see. Yeah, I was I was wondering if it was French literature, just English. because I know she's a fluent right, speaker. And she may yeah. have been doing some comparative lit or something, but but I, it was literature. Yeah. yeah. So she might have been uh, ultimately a professor at Yale. Had to use not worked out. Indeed. Get a master's yeah. And, yeah. and move yeah, on yeah. to that. Yeah. Sure. Well, uh, before I let this wonderful panel go, I do want to let you know that the next uh, Dryden Roundtable has been booked. It's July 15th, and it's going to be with Mark Waters, who is the director of the Beale Institute at the Eastman School of Music and Charity Lofthouse, a professor at Hobart and William Smith. And we'll be talking about uh, our upcoming summer series, The Art of Music in Movies. And uh, we'll be sort of, there'll be one film before that, but we'll be sort of kicking off the series with uh, those participants. Um, on July 15th. So uh, please help me in thanking Nora Brown, Carter Souls, and Kendall Phillips for a wonderful conversation this afternoon. Thanks for having me. I really had a great time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Uh, thanks to Jared. <laughs> yeah, thanks to Jared Case for putting this together. Thanks, guys.